Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From Postcard from the Past and Wardour Studios, this is Podcast from the Past. The Postcard Podcast. This is the podcast where we lay our postcards on the table and get down to the scratchy business of the stories, the memories and meanings behind the pictures and messages on picture postcards. I'm Tom Jackson, and today I'm delighted to say my guests are broadcaster Gideon Coe and poet Ruth Padell. Gideon and Ruth, hello and welcome. Lovely hello, to be lovely here. to be here. <laughs> now, Gideon Coe made his name on the late-lamented GLR, first as a sports reporter and then memorably hosting The Breakfast Show. Since then, he's worked on Five Live, Radio 4, but his radio home for the last 15 or so years... 16. 16 years has been Six Music, where he patrols the nine-till-midnight slot uh, with dry humour and eclectic music from extreme noise terror to pentangle to dolly mixture and beyond. A far cry from his appearances as a small boy on the BBC One TV programme. Why don't you switch off your television set and go and do something less boring instead? Absolutely. All true. I can't (laughs) argue with any of that. The the most professional work I ever did was on Why Don't You? (laughs) Most extraordinary on-the-money one-take work that I will ever do. Well, and let's, let's hope you're still judged by that. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I'll take that. Absolutely. <laughs> Gideon comes to us today with a CT2 postmark from Canterbury in Kent, indelibly stamped upon him. Now, Gideon, do you still send postcards? Yes, uh, when there's a family holiday. There are, there's a shorter list now, I have to say, than there used to be, which maybe is down to uh, individual uh, laziness and it could be... I don't know, just people less likely to send postcards. But uh, Passing of time. The that? passing of time. But when we're away, my mum and stepdad will get a postcard. Uh, my mother-in-law will get a postcard. My father-in-law will get a postcard. And then maybe one of the brothers, if there's one left over and we got a stamp. <laughs> and then maybe maybe my dad as well. So, yes, I think that's about the only time. Um, I, I, very occasionally I will send still a, a, a note on a postcard just as a thank you or as a reminder about something. I don't know, just That does happen about three or four times a year. That will still happen. Very good. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's admirable behaviour, I think. Uh, now, Ruth Padell is an award-winning poet and writer. She is Professor of Poetry at King's College London, actually not very far from where we're sitting today. Ruth started out as a classicist, and myths and myth-making infuse her work, which includes ten poetry collections and eight books of non-fiction, including, I suppose, a particular interest uh, with Gideon in the studio today, uh, I'm a Man, Sex, Gods and Rock and Roll. 
which is about Greek myth and rock music and the way they inform each other. Also, a number of books about understanding and finding meaning in poetry. Ruth is, it so happens, a great, great granddaughter of Charles Darwin, uh, and she wrote Darwin, A Life in Poems, which is a kind of kaleidoscopic poetic biography of the great man. And Ruth comes to us today bearing a W1 postmark. And Ruth, when did you last send a postcard? I send them quite often. I, I don't always send them when I'm on holiday, but I'm a, I'm a sort of absolutely addicted postcard buyer. So I go to places and, and sometimes the, place, the, the postcards I buy remind me of, of the places. So, and then I can't bear to part with them because I, I send them like Gideon. I send them and, you know, I sometimes send them, you know, to thank somebody maybe for, for supper or something like that or, or just to a family member. So I have a whole collection. My mum did that too. She had a huge collection of postcards and you would get some weird postcard from somewhere that you had no idea she'd ever been to. Some canned, you know, out of the blue. So they come... Sometime later, you might press it into service. Maybe 15 years later. Good yes. Lord. And are you, are you one of these writers who has a sort of array of cards around your desk, little sort of inspirations? I can do that, or around the house, yeah, yes. Especially when, I, when I'm writing a book. For instance, I'm just beginning to write. I wrote a book about tigers, and I'm just beginning to think about writing a book about elephants. Mm. And so I now have elephants around the place, <laughs> cards of elephants and so on. Very good. I'm sure there's some terrific cards of elephants out there. There are. Well, before we discover the cards that Ruth and Gideon have brought along, I'll give you a quick one of, uh, of mine. And this is, of course, in the postcard from the past style, uh, like I do on Twitter, uh, at past postcard. It's an old card from which I've selected just a part of the message. So um, I'm showing this now to uh, Gideon and Ruth. It's um, a picture of a, <laughs> it's a, a Welsh girl, I think. It's fair yeah. to say. On a mountaintop with a Jack Russell? With a Welsh corgi. A Welsh, Welsh corgi, thank you, Mark. Yes, yes. Oh, goodness me, sorry. <laughs> you might, might have met a Jack Russell once. Um, <laughs> and it's pretty obedient. I think they're quite snappy corgis, actually. Yeah. But somehow it looks incredibly exotic. It could be Burma or somewhere. Mm. Yes. Well, I think the colour of the sky often helps with that. Yeah. My wife had corgis as a child, and I think they're quite, uh, they are quite snappy. Is your wife Welsh? No, no, Polish. So, what have we got here? Yes, it's from someone called Jenny. I don't know when it was sent. Sent in 1990. It was quite a recent oh. card. To me, it seems like yesterday, 1990. This is, this is definitely a poem for you, Ruth. We went with two kites and came home with one. <laughs> there is no more to say. Yeah, yeah. There is no more to say. It would be a ballad, I think. Yes? The ending of a ballad. <laughs> yes. We went with two kites and came home with one. <laughs> This, this one is less poetic. It's more of a slice of social history. This is from 1971, significantly. And there's pink two-and-a-half-p stamps oh. used to have. It's a picture of the Rye and the River River Rother. Uh, very nice down there. Yeah, tranquil gorgeous. place. Nice to visit. I'm sure you both oh, spent yes. time there. The author of this, Carol, she's reporting back, really. I haven't seen many skinheads in the camp, <laughs> considering that there are a lot of people staying here. But I am going to a disco tonight, so I might see some then. <laughs> that sounds like, the way you read it, that sounds like uh, eager anticipation rather than uh, terrified. But maybe that's yeah, the case. Maybe I'm not sure. Skinhead yeah. spotting. They got a bad rap at that time, obviously, because there, uh, there were a few around and there, there may have been trouble with them. But they equally might have been there dancing to skinhead reggae. Yeah, I just wonder if 71, the skinhead was just a fashion as much as a, as a sort of something to be fearful of. I'm not sure. But I, I did. I read that as anticipation because I think that's what it is. I, I, it was an exotic species. Yeah. Yeah. 
See them in the wild. (laughs) When were slaves dressed up as... When Ambrose Uh, Slade, when were they dressed up as... By then, they would have... I'd imagine they would have been lesser. Their head would have been longer. Their head would have been longer by then. It was a brief phase, I think. Still with the big sideies that they had... As, as as skinheads in the sort of yeah late sixties until about nineteen seventy I think but I mean as always and as, as I'm sure lots of people say to you Tom but the the whole business with these postcards that you post that you post online is that they they are so momentarily haunting aren't they? <laughs> and even something like that and they are quirky as well at the same time and they are, they are sometimes emotionally involving but it's just that literal snapshot of the past There's something about her mindset that we'll never get any closer to than that. Uh, that moment. But I'm glad she wrote it down. Yes. Well, let's let you know at home. Images of all the cards we discussed today are on the blog, postcardfromthepast.co.uk, so you can have a look for yourself and make your own minds up. Now, Ruth and Gideon, you've both been kind enough to come along to the studio today with postcards of your own, uh, which is greatly appreciated. Uh, Gideon, could you tell me about the first card you brought for us? Oh, actually, this isn't one you brought, is it? I think I supplied this to help out a gap in your collection. Uh, it's very strange that I... I, there, there must be one in the house, as I'm sure many people say from time to time. Uh, there must be several in the house uh, because this is Canterbury, and Canterbury uh, and, uh, and the, my connection with Canterbury runs deep and runs long and runs from my entire life and is destined to do so forever as well. Because uh, this is a picture of Canterbury, Canterbury Cathedral. I have to say, from a slightly unfamiliar angle, because I think it's from the War Memorial Gardens. Is that a true angle nowadays? Can you still see that, do you think, um, or perhaps things I'm, have changed? I'm just trying to picture where it's coming from. It's from the back. Oh, so it's the sort of the uh, cathedral entrance is there to the left. So that would be that way. Be I don't think so. I think it would be a different. <laughs> be something they, would be different. It would be, so there would be they, a they tower can't have, block. They can't have knocked down <laughs> the war memorial. There may be a Nando's in the way that you can't, <laughs> you can't quite see it. But unmistakably, Canterbury Cathedral, which does dominate. And the that skyline. is unchanging. That is unchanging, thankfully. And usually under repair as well. And my connection with Canterbury is that I was born there in 1967 and left there initially in 1970. When my parents divorced and the uh, my soon-to-be three brothers and my stepdad, we all moved to Bristol and we were there for 10 years. And we would regularly visit Canterbury. Canterbury was our, then became not my just my birth town, but the, the place we'd visit as a holiday destination. In the meantime... My mum's parents, Lily and Frank, had moved down to Canterbury, retired there from uh, South London. And uh, my dad's parents, Nellie and George, were already down there and going back generations had been down there. And they... Uh, so Canterbury was becoming increasingly your ancestral home and it your... It goes back. My, my <laughs> great-uncle Cyril wrote a book, which he a sort of self-published book called Bending with the Wind which caused mild amusement among the rest of the family. But it, it was is the, the family history is quite a checkered one, and but it does it's forever linked to Canterbury going back generations, as far as I can tell, on the side of the Coes and indeed the Robsons on my, my uh, Nana Nelly's side. Uh, but they, the my dad's parents, ended up moving next door to my mum's parents. In literally the, next door? Literally next door. This, so is, this is a sitcom in the making. 90, exactly. 1930s terrace, uh, not 1930s, semi-detached, next door to each other, lovely gardens on both. And from our point of view as kids, when we were visiting on holiday, it was just the most magical thing. The run of two houses, the run of two gardens in a place, because we were living in Bristol, fine and dandy in the 1970s if you are a student or growing up, you know, grown up there. But for us, it was we found it a little bit sort of 
grey and rainy. Whereas Canterbury always seems to be sunshine, probably because we're on holiday there. <laughs> and unbeknown to us, they didn't really get on very well at all. They weren't destined oh. to. They were lovely people, but not destined to be happy neighbours. <laughs> So, wow. this, even though they had this bind, they were bound together by family or bound by, mar- by marriage family. at least. Yes, well, a marriage which had uh, come to an end. Yes. Which, these only children, their only children on either side. Uh, and they were, I'm not sure if they, how much needle there was about that, but obviously that had happened. And then the kids, always grandchildren, always add to the political landscape anyway. <laughs> Turn up the heat a bit. There was one time when my brother turned 13 and uh, we had the party there, and there was a dividing fence but as my mother described it at the time that was when the only time the wall came down now they all congregated in the one garden and there was sort of dancing and you know, close ballroom dancing so to speak and yeah. it was an idyllic sort of oh, afternoon yeah. a rapprochement <laughs> uh, the temporary rapprochement did happen at that point and then latterly we moved back as a family to Canterbury when I was 12 13 and I did the rest of my growing up there and it was a wonderful place to be a teenager You've got everything there. You've got the sea, exactly. you've got the castle, you've got... Yeah, it was, uh, and it was big enough to rattle around in, but not too big to be terrified of. Mm. And the, yeah, very much the, the family pool, it's a weird place. It's not. It's a weird place for me because it, it, to this day and forever, it has something strange about it. And that's wrapped up in the sort of um, endless nostalgia you have for where you're a, a teenager, I think. And that will never leave me. But it was also because it was a holiday destination. And it was a place where we had these idyllic times and it seemed like endless summers playing in the back garden. So you visited and you lived there and you lived well, you lived there twice. Yes, I'm, I've lived there twice and my wife is keen to point out that we're not going to retire down there. <laughs> uh, we have no plans. Was it hinted to. at some stage? <laughs> no plans to. Well, I think I always play up to it. Every time we go back, I think, oh, I feel a bit... You know, could we live here? Could I come in? Could I go back to the family seat? Reclaim the family, you know, become Laird of Northgate. I think that's a very good idea. <laughs> but there are no plans to do so, but I, I love visiting it and I love going back to the old haunts that that still remain there. And it's a place I've sent postcards to and received postcards from. A place I've missed and received when I've been living in London and postcards will come from Canterbury from my mum. Very good, very good. That card kind of uh, sums up that rather complicated two-way relationship you have with the place. Brilliant. Yes. Well, th- thank you for sharing that. A pleasure to do so. It's maybe quite wistful for Canterbury. <laughs> straight, <laughs> straight on the train after this. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ruth... What's the first delivery you've got for us? I think it's from slightly further afield, I believe. Yeah, these are four Galapagos penguins. Oh, wow. And um, they're jaunty little fellows. They're the only sort of penguins that live in a hotter climate than any others. And um, this card was sent in um, 2005 by my mum to her sister-in-law, my father's sister, after we'd been on a fantastic family trip to the Galapagos. So it was me and my daughter, who was then on her gap year in South America and sort of swanned in to meet us That's in Ecuador. Handy. Yes. <laughs> and two of my brothers and uh, my mother's cousin, they were both 85. What a trip to organise. Uh, it was it was a bit of organising. <laughs> um, we went with a, on a quite small boat. We were very, very lucky. And... Um, you know, my, my, she says in this card, um, she says, it was a wonderful trip. We went in a family group. I needed quite a bit of help getting in and out of small tossing dinghies on, and on rough volcanic walks. The most special thing is the tameness of the animals. The sea lions are enchanting but smelly, she says. <laughs> and it's all delightful. She loved it. But what she doesn't put in that postcard is what I remember most vividly. We were all swimming about in the sea and my daughter was snorkelling and my mother and Sophie, her cousin, were on the little boat. 
And suddenly our guide said, killer whales, killer whales, get in the dinghy, get in the dinghy. So they were called pangas. So we all sort of slithered over into the side of the dinghy and we shot off. And I thought, are we getting out of the way of killer whales? No, we were going towards them. Oh. And um, so there they were, suddenly were, a whole school of quite young, I think, killer whales. Wow. And we thought they, and then they started circling our dinghy. And we're going round and round. Which is presumably not a particularly robust No, there was, there was a sort of thin line of rubber, like almost just oh a condom between us and the... <laughs> and, a killer whale, a school yes. of killer whales. And then they started Terrific. going underneath us. Mm. And um, they dived underneath. I mean, I could I could have touched them. I could have looked over. I'm just, you know, here I am touching Gideon's genie thigh. <laughs> and I could have touched the killer whales like wow. that. And the last one bumped us like that. Oh, and nice. it was really scary. And my mum was watching from the boat and wondering which, which of her family they were going to eat first. And we were only in our you know, bathing costumes. I suppose they could have eaten us easily with clothes on, but you know, we would have been slightly more tasty without them. Um, it was, it, I was scared. I mean, the guide was laughing, but I was terrified. Were they, were they playing? Were they, was it like dolphins would do? They might have a similar sort of... They must have, yeah. Or, or, albeit with, with uh, sharp the, teeth. The, the, people, the, the, the guide was there had never seen this behaviour before. Oh, yeah. And we thought they were chasing sea lions, but then we saw that these were quite young bachelor sea lions and they were actually running with them. It's like, like boys doing chicken across a motorway right, yes. because they are the killer whale's natural prey. Mm. So there they were sort of daring each other to swim <laughs> with these damn whales. And they were very beautiful, glossy and black. And there was no rapport. We were definitely being played with. Yes. Yeah. And then, <laughs> then after the third time under the boat and we felt the moving, you know, there are stories of them actually upending a fishing base. I'd have thought. So we could have been upended at any time. We were totally in their power. Anyway, then they decided we were boring and moved off. You must still be paying off the travel insurance from taking <laughs> 85-year-old relatives <laughs> towards a school of killer whales. Yes, well, it was, it was, um, it was quite something. Yeah. So in the end, they went away and had their lunch on the, on the sea lions? Or? I suppose so. We just, they just move away. That's the astonishing thing, because I've done quite a lot. I wrote a book about wild tigers, and at least with tigers or elephants, you can... There is the forest and you can sort of see them and you understand it. But the sea, as soon as it's gone down, you don't know where the hell it is. Yeah. Yes, you don't hear it going away because no. it's just no. gone into the abyss. Yeah. I mean, once when I was... When I was um, doing my tiger book and I was in Sumatra we were on foot we were tracking tigers on foot in this high ridge on a, on a volcano a very high rainforest and we went off the path and waited a little we had seen some old tiger tracks and then the, the forest went silent just like you know when the conductor comes on in a, in a concert hall or something and I, and I looked at my guide and she just smiled and said nothing and um, then we heard a cough on the path, and tigers do cough. <laughs> and um, then there was a, t a twig snapped. And then we, the, the silence sort of faded, and I said, what was that? She said, a forest goes like that sometimes when there's a large predator around. You never know what it was. It could have been a tiger stopping on the path to check us out. Probably was. We went back on the path. And the trainers I had were sort of rather soppy little trainers. My young teenage daughter thought they were crap and they weren't good trainers at all but anyway they had a very distinctive pattern and I could see where mine was and over it was laid a very large tiger pug mark Oh! so the tiger had just gone by stopped checked us coughed to show where she was there and then moved off what is it that's drawing you to these uh, predatory creatures in the wild I don't know, but I'm going to go for elephants now, and they're not predatory. They are actually more scary than tigers because they're much more unpredictable. 
Um, they're very emotional. In, in a forest, an Indian forest, I'm much more scared of, of elephants. Well, they could tread on you. They can sw- They can kill you with one with one swipe of their trunk. I did some research in Whipsnade um, this summer, and and the elephant keeper, he keeps out of the way of the bars. I mean, they, these are you know they they weigh them and they get to know them and they can call them, but you shouldn't ever trust an elephant. And he could just get you like that through the bars, swipe you against the bars. Angry elephants. There's a th- you know quite a few films of angry elephants pursuing vehicles and getting away just in time yeah. <laughs> because obviously they riled the. Well, they've got between them and their, their calves, yeah. I think. So, and hippopotamus. There's oh, hippopotamus, be tra- very scary. Very, very dangerous as well. The, big, what, the biggest, I dare say, hesitate to say the biggest killer, because that makes it sound like it's vindictive, <laughs> but uh, more likely than any other animal, I think, in Africa, to be the, be the cause of somebody yeah. coming to grief in an encounter with an animal. Now, to go back to your uh, to my Galapagos, Galapagos penguin, the penguins themselves uh, look quite benign. That yeah. card has come to you the way cards sometimes do through relatives who received them, then dying. and Yeah, the, the, the... My, aunt, my beloved aunt Una, who, who received this card and did not come on the Galapagos trip, um, she left me a little desk as an as a heirloom when she died. And um, there were a lot of postcards in her desk. So, so I, I found this, yes, from my mother to her, and you know, 20, 15 years ago. I bet she was jealous she never went on the trip when she got that card. Oh, yeah, she had wanted to come, but um, in the end she decided not to. Well, she got the postcard. She, she got, got the postcard. postcard. Well, that's a terrific story. Thank you for that, uh, Ruth. I'll change the tone very uh, considerably, I'm afraid, and, and do another quick one of mine. And not entirely by coincidence, it's a picture of... And Gideon will recognise this, I'm sure, very clearly. Uh, uh, is that the choir at Canterbury Cathedral? It's the... uh, they call it the... Yes, it's, it's, it's the martyrdom. It's where... Where I think, oh, it's uh, Thomas Beckett. Beckett, Beckett, Beckett was there killed. Yeah, it's, it's, murder uh, in the cathedral. Exactly, yes. exactly. They still see the blood stains according to some. I never could see it myself. Refreshed every year. <laughs> yes. They used to tell the joke about the uh, little plaque on the floor that said, uh, Beckett fell here, and you know, I nearly tripped over it myself. But anyway, <laughs> this, is, uh, this, is, this is a card from uh, someone called Uncle Peter, oh. sent to someone in uh, Doncaster, and it's 69. Just a little moment on it that, I, that, that caught my eye. They're trying a colour television where we're staying, so we are rather enjoying it. <laughs> so it's just, you know, you wouldn't say that now, clearly. So it, it was at the height of exoticism to get the first colour television, whenever that would have been. 69. Oh, 69, this, so, yeah. wow, they're very early adopters, wherever they were staying. Must have been, I'd imagine that was the county hotel. Yes, a, ho- <laughs> a hotel, not <laughs> a very much, That was where the money was, generally, yeah. Is it still going, the county hotel? No, it's not there anymore, it's got a different name. No. Same televisions, though. Yeah, I would imagine <laughs> so. Yeah. I suppose you might say, they're try- we're trying Netflix or, you know. <laughs> uh, they have Wi-Fi. They have wi- a Wi-Fi here. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> what it would be now. Yeah. They have Bluetooth. Oh, we'll be well beyond that. Very good. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Podcast from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. And my guests today, I'm happy to say, are Ruth Padel and Gideon Co. And Gideon, what's... The second card you've got for us today. Well, this postcard of Villefranche-sur-Mer on the Côte d'Azur, um, which is one of those, as Ruth was mentioning earlier, this is a card that we uh, collectively as a family, one of us bought on a trip there and, and brought home without sending to anybody. So apologies to family members who didn't get anything for this particular trip. <laughs> aunt who never received it. <laughs> and it, it sort of takes me into France and into Europe as well because... Once we were back in Canterbury, there, it was easier to make trips to France. So we would go. The, we went on a. It felt like the most extraordinarily adventurous camping trip. So like a three-day trip to northern France in the early 1980s. Before that, I'd, I'd had one trip with school and also with my dad. My dad took me and took my old brother and I sometime in the in the mid 70s when we were actually terrified of getting rabies that's all I remember from that particular trip <laughs> so my the, brother, the, the my, posters were pretty much telling yeah, you you were going to my brother was saying don't don't touch the sand uh, we, we had that, that usual uh, experience of playing uh, table football with locals and getting absolutely pasted because they knew how to play properly they weren't spinning either so i remember that from that particular trip and there after various trips um quite a few with my dad as well because uh, with him being uh, absentee, as it were, and a, a working musician as well, and very, very busy during the seventies and eighties. So we'd uh, he'd send postcards from various unbelievably exotic locations to to our eyes, like Malmo and, and uh, Hamburg and Berlin and Paris, and occasionally take us on on trips as well to Paris, and um, you know, which was again felt like it was beautifully other otherworldly and and. Um, a lovely place to be but it would also also it was a way of him keeping in touch with with my older brother and keeping in touch with me because via postcards from wherever he was that's the best way he could do it telephones were the most expensive things in the world to use <laughs> in the 1970s you couldn't put from abroad possibly once every 10 years you may be able to afford to do that <laughs> um it's just absolutely out of the question and we only had incoming calls anyway so we couldn't ring him wherever he was so he'd send us things like so he said we got some uh, tom's very kindly provided three postcards which depict uh, the mannequin piece in uh, in brussels which is a statuette. It's quite a small statue of a boy urinating, which the, the legend has to do with putting out a fire, which was, I presume, threatening the, the town. Oh. I presume, I it is one of the least from. likely statues in any city in Europe, really. Yeah, I presume it's still a functioning fountain. I don't think it's a drinking fountain. I'd hope not. Uh, and obviously, we thought it was... The, to get something like that, was like, <laughs> he sent us a key ring as well, which, we would, which wasn't a working key ring. Like, that would, these days, it would be. So he sent, he sent us one of those. But it was... 
it's quite, I suppose quite poignant in a way because it was his one way of keeping in touch with his son. So he'd sent well, one of the ways because otherwise we'd see him at gigs and uh, interminable jazz gigs because they were lost on us. And all, what did he play? Saxophone and clarinet. So we go to Ronnie Scott's and see him play there, which I'm sure was that were absolutely fantastic shows. We'd listen to Ronnie Scott do his uh, the, the same jokes he always did and continue to do for forever for as long as he was he was there. Uh, which we we liked the jokes, but the jazz was lost on us. And sadly, in those days, I'm afraid jazz is wasted on the young. Now it'd be amazing. So it was a way to keep in touch. Beyond that was the postcards that he sent from wherever. He was usually in Northern Europe, where they clearly they, they it was more efficient. They paid better. And they had your names on it. He'd written your names, and they came to you. Yeah, they, exactly. Yeah. They were our postcards. And similarly, we went on a on a trip with him one holiday. I think it must have been a half sort of summer half term. We went to uh, he's very very much into uh, ahead of his time in many things, and very much into nature cure and uh, that approach to to health. So we went. So he took his one teenager, one soon-to-be teenage son, to uh, this place in Edinburgh, which we found quite difficult <laughs> as children. There was nowhere to play football, as far as we could tell. And uh, what, what were you doing there? What, what... Eat a lot of juices and, and yoga. Wow. Uh, Water? Uh, no, there might have been a, a sort of plunge pool to have a cold splash in. Uh, and the yoga, there was. A, I remember we obviously would get the giggles during yoga because it was the funniest thing you could ever think. And there was a man there with his mother, looking after his mother with a very, very loud northern voice, who would, uh, in the middle of a very sort of meditation part, the teacher would be doing the heavy breathing, be very silent, and he would say, "We'd hear." I say, uh, my mother, she kind of get a leg up, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> So Simon would start laughing. So, but the, as part of the, the rest of the family were in Canterbury, and I felt very homesick. So I remember getting a postcard from my mum and stepdad to where we were in Edinburgh, and it was written. And I remember it. I wish I'd kept it. Part eight hundred and fifty-seven. It was one of those weird postcards. We got far too much text on it, printed text. All on right. It. So there's about oh, one that was a description yeah, on the exactly. back. Yeah. So, so there's no room for you. Exactly, it's a tiny bit, and my stepmother just put it on it. Uh, there's not enough room here to write a message, <laughs> love. <laughs> But receiving that, where well, I was slightly homesick uh, and thinking of uh, my mum and the rest of the family, uh, was great. And was, you know, receiving postcards like that, and it's the same when you know, miss my dad and get postcards from him wherever he was. They they really they 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 help. You don't then and would do now. You don't always need to write very much, actually, do you? Because the the message really is that I'm thinking of you. Um, yes, you're being held in somebody else's mind while they're in another place, and that's so important. Mm-hmm. Well, but some people agonise over what should I put on this postcard? Just say where we are, what it's like, and uh, send love. There we go. That'll do. Yes, and uh, you'll find writing about the weather at some length is yeah. uh, fairly customary. <laughs> weather, food, location, lots of love. See you soon. Bye bye. Yes, my dad. When we went on family holidays, he he would um, write a lot of very very careful postcards, and he would be very punctilious about it and write each one very carefully. I think it's a it, that's a thoughtful process. Yeah, isn't it? it is. Mm. What I used to see is I, I look at probably too many postcards. I do see in cards from the nineteen seventies and sixties and seventies actually. People say a lot about when they're coming home. Mm. I don't think you say that on card now. You know, I'll be home on Tuesday probably, or I'm, I don't know when we'll be back. Or it, as if it kind of matters that much. But it was something people used to say. Uh, I it's think it's because perhaps because travel has got so much cheaper. Because it was really expensive then. And now, you know, you can go, you can fly to Romania for £50 or something. And you have far more options. 
Because this is even people at, at, at a British seaside resort. Uh, you know, we'll probably be home on Thursday. Yeah, I think there's an element of not trusting this weird way that you could suddenly go very quickly to these uh, you know, exotic places. Also, cars were very unreliable then, genuinely. So the number of cars where they say the car broke down yeah. is just... Yeah, we're planning to drive back. <laughs> there's bound to be trouble. Yeah, yeah, the clutch is gone. Or luck- Luckily, it was only the brakes that went. There are a lot of card references in in your postcards, aren't there? No, there's, yeah. the, yes, and specific makes and what's going on with the Vauxhall. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think we should bring that back to postcards, actually. I, mean, I don't actually have a car, and I can't drive, but I think I'll start putting it on postcards. Put it in anyway. Yeah, exactly. What about the food? Isn't there quite a lot of food on postcards? The, the, the food is awful, the food is lovely. The food... I think for certainly for the first package holidays, people talk about... Well, British holidays, seaside, people are often absolutely thrilled to have someone else cooking for them mm. because people didn't eat out so much at all, of course. Yeah. So suddenly to have all your meals catered for you is very exciting and people nearly always say the food's terrific in, in, in the guest house. Yeah. Once they go abroad, quite a lot of... Uh, people don't entirely trust the food. You know, food all right, but it's all Spanish. Or food... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. But at the same time, I think the sense of being catered for is, as we all find on holiday, fantastic. It's just there. People bringing you things. Yeah, it's wonderful. And you've saved up all year for that. And you live this little moment, brief moment in your life of, of some kind of luxury. Uh, it's different. But I, I don't know if the next generation will entirely feel that because a lot of people... Uh, who have the money, eat out a lot more than I know I ever did as a, as, as a youngster. So it's, it's it's changing a bit, I think. But yeah, food, cars breaking down, and then um, the rest of it fill out with the weather and job done. <laughs> so Ruth, what's the final card you've got for us? So I have got this postcard which I bought two years ago, in France. in France again? France again, yes, yeah. from your Azure. I must say, the colour, I wish this wasn't only radio, because the colour on that Cote d'Azur Bay is the most amazing deep turquoise. Cuisine. It might even be real, that, I think. Yes, yeah. it's a beautiful colour, and, and it sets off nicely. The, the, the houses are all slightly pink-coloured, and from the point where this picture is taken, just down the bay to the left, you can see the very pink house where David Niven used to live, hmm. uh, and where Errol Flynn would arrive on the jetty and probably swing in on a rope and they go out and have a gallivant together. Is this, so, is this the fantasy you live out when you're down there? I'd happily go. Well, I'm waiting for the invitation from David Niven come and join him in the south of France and gallivant But non-stop. it is the most beautiful turquoise. It is. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, colours there as well. Yeah. So this, this, this is important to me. This is a, a cave painting of a horse <clears throat> from the Ice Age. And um, I'd never been to any of these things um, before, but I was staying with with some very dear friends, old friends, quite near one of these caves. And I said, oh, could we go? And my mum had died uh, six months before, and I'd written a lot of poems, and I thought the book was finished. It's a book called called Emerald. And my mum, who who had a great sense of humour and was quite spiky, but and... You know, she was sort of sceptical. Yeah, I've seen her postcard. <laughs> yes, quite. Enchanting but smelly, yes. So I'd been researching emeralds and I'd written, I'd thought a lot about emeralds, which is my birthstone and um, their, how they're mined and how they're, you know, in, in astrology and all sorts of things. But then she completely torpedoed the whole enterprise by starting to die. But she, she stopped because um, she had an aneurysm which sealed over. So it was very lucky for her and for us. She wasn't in a lot of pain. We didn't have to watch so many people people's parents die in absolute 
agony and it's awful to watch or dementia. We didn't have any of that. She had three weeks in which she was uncomfortable and a bit scared, but she could see everybody. And people came. She had a large extended family and people came and she would meet them and greet them by saying, I'm on the way out. And my cousin, Goodness. some cousin or other, would be rather taken aback. Said, so I hear. You know? <laughs> and um, then we had quite jokey times. And um, it, was a, it was a very benevolent mode. But anyway, afterwards, of course, you know, she was 97. She'd been around all my life. And um, so there's, you know, the grief and thought about bereavement and everything. So that I wrote poems about her and about that. I thought they were finished. Then I was with these friends in France. I said, can we go to this Ice Age cave? And we, we did. And it was extraordinary. And I went down with friends it was quite dangerous. We had to, you know, you, if you were, were on crutches, you weren't allowed to go. You had to have proper food. You have to leave everything alone, not touch the walls. But it, it did something to me. It was like a return, a down, going down into the underworld, the great myth of going down into the underworld, like Orpheus too, and then finding some sort of sense of renewal afterwards. And I thought I might read a little bit of the poem that came out of that. Please. If that would be good. Okay, so, so it's... It's a kind of travel down into the underworld. You know, I heard a hiss, the hiss of time like the swish of tires on a wet road as we faltered along and bowed our heads and felt the blowing of solar winds and the need for fire like the start cry of a race. It was so black, you know. And then the guide shone her, her lamp up and we saw bison flickering the black circles of their eyes, rippling on cream stone as if over a canvas of the mind. I thought of Freud, how the unconscious is constructed geologically by pressure, a kind of archaeological layering under the soul inaccessible except in dreams. And horses appeared, the tissue of their manes clear against grey rock, every tuft erect, scribble shaggy, bolshy, necks stretched out, eyes closed, mealy muzzled as an Exmoor pony, a whole wall of horses on prehistoric limestone like a page of Leonardo's sketchbook. Whoever drew them had no idea these animals would come to be our partners, change human work and history. But I felt at home. Here were the horses my mum used to draw for me till I could draw my own. And then um, I, well, we took it all in. The delicate expressions, the questioning back-turned nose of an ibex, the flaring nostril and lifted tail of one bison challenging another. I felt my mother's greatest gift to me was noticing. She taught us to be curious, to wonder at all animal life, however small the territory fights of a chaffinch, fox cubs creeping out at night to their skirmishes with cats. Snails, she murmured once at a TV programme on invertebrates. Who would have thought a snail could be so tender? So then the guide asked us to sing, and I thought of Orpheus singing you know, in, the, in, the, in the underworld. Um... And, you know, I sang a bit, and then, here in deep earth, the black blossom of morning still sifting within me, I remembered that emerald was my birthstone, that an emerald, mined in the dark, but green as leaves returning after a hundred thousand years of ice, green for awakening, for bringing life back from the dead, renewal in earth and of the earth, is a token of rebirth. And in this cave of making, birth of transformation and of art, I understood how anyone in darkness longs for green.
for the animal life which goes with green, and which, like faceted crystal, light in stone, lets us see the impossible, our own lives, with their faults and wounds, in a different way. And how the very idea of one gem for our birth might make us try to say the story of ourselves with a whole heart, to carry the true good burden of being known, even by animal eyes, and not alone, like the singer who drew all life towards him and went down into the dark, taking his art into the earth, and art takes him up to the light again, renewed. So I... Thank you very much for reading that. That's wonderful. But I was thinking about your postcards, and I was thinking, you know, some small thing, like a poem or a song, is a real concentration of something that matters to the person who has written it and the person who receives it, like the ones that your dad sent you, in a way. And I I suppose that's why it had to go into a poem. Hmm. I think sometimes also these, these little cardboard images and messages are absolutely resonating with meaning. It almost takes a poet to unpack that and explain it, I think, or, or, or a series of social historians. But I think to take the meaning, I think you, you, need, you need a kind of poet's eye and a poet's skill, craft, to be able to, to, to kind of to, to make sense of it. And to report back from that whole experience of going somewhere like down into the depths, somewhere like that, and to have the, the clarity of thought about it is quite something because not to, to belittle that at all, is that my one experience of going to look at uh, ancient caves led to just a blind panic and wanting to get out of there as soon as I possibly could rather than treasuring what was down there. Uh, were they painted? Uh, were, there, were there art? Uh, there no, art? They, were old, they were corpses, basically. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's there, was, there was evidence of art as well. There was a very, very primitive art, which I, I do find... Oh, naturally fascinating and and again quite haunting that picture of a, of a, of a horse bolshy did you say well they are a bit bolshy he looks bolshy doesn't yes, he no, he, he might like, bite you any moment not, you know, not there to be tamed do yeah. its own thing maybe help you out if it feels like it but yeah a bolshy horse I like that but also you know? they were it was extraordinary it was as if they were trying it out they had a lot of backs of animals they started to draw them and then stopped and that's how they must have seen them you know horses galloping away in the green hills around there when I see that card, I can smell shoe polish. Because when, when we were children, we used to have a, I think it would have been like a little waste paper basket that had images of these, Not I'm not sure it was these ones, but certainly some From the Dordogne. We had one exactly. like that too. And yes. all the shoe polish and rags, our old yeah. school vests actually, yeah. were, were in there. <laughs> Polish, and polishing your shoes is something you had to do. And I can just smell the shoe polish seeing that, which is a different set of associations, it has to be said. Lovely smell, though. Oh, yeah. lovely smell of the shoe polish. Yes, you can I see like brown shoe polish. I didn't like black. Did it smell that different? Yeah, it did. <laughs> wow. A poet's <laughs> <Yeah>. nose. <laughs> well, uh, Gideon and Ruth, uh, thank you so much for coming in. It was uh, great fun. Oh, thank, thank you for sharing yeah. your memories. And, and, you know, I have to say thank you for the poem as well, Ruth. It's particularly good. A quick reminder for those of you at home, uh, images of all the cards we talked about, they're all on the blog, postcardfromthepast.co.uk, including this next one, a last one of mine in the past postcard style. I don't know if I can, I can't compete, but it's not a competition. So this is a card of Trafalgar Square by night. Uh, I don't think I've seen this image before, actually. um, It must be New Year's Eve or something. It must be New Year's Eve. It's crowded. Full of people. And I don't think there's the neon advertising signs in Trafalgar Square now. Where is it taken from? Let's have a look. Um, Is that towards Northumberland Avenue? It's looking north, isn't it? um... I think it's coming down from 
I think the National Gallery must be here. Right, OK. Do you think that? Uh, and then there's one... Oh, no, hang on. It's not behind us. No, I mean, actually, I've got no... I've oh, I see, yes, I'm yes. Not, oh, that's, no, that's... You're right. That, the National Gallery is... I think National Gallery is behind us, and that's um, whatever the bookshop is there. And that's Charing Cross Road, isn't it, or not? I got that wrong. Perhaps I'll have to go down after this and, and, and line it up. This isn't the London we know. What's <laughs> happened? <laughs> the past is a tricky place. <laughs> I don't think they've moved Nelson's column. I'm fairly confident. No, but I can't see Nelson's column. Oh, it's just behind one, that, one of the fountains. It's hiding. There, is that Nelson's column? Is that the foot of it there? I think it must. Hang on. Previously, we lost Canterbury Cathedral. Now we, <laughs> now we, Nelson's column is missing. What unreliable memories we have. I'll give you the message anyway. It's an interesting. It's, it's sent in 1970, July, to someone. It's sent to, uh, to Northern Ireland from someone called Helen, who I think has been visiting, and she says... We've done a little sightseeing and have been to the Palladium to see Val Dunican. A lot of foreigners here. <laughs> so um, That's the sign-off, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, well, it's the great metropolis, Helen. <laughs> um, and, and you yourself have visited from across the water. Um, so I, I take that as simply a happy observation, a lot of foreigners here. I don't, I don't think she's being nasty. Um, now, before we let uh, Gideon and Ruth back out into these somewhat overcast London streets. Um, I've got one more postcard for you both to look at. It's become customary for us to end the programme with one of these. I suppose, uh, you're both musical guests, but uh, I don't know if you've seen one of those ah, before. This is a, a playable postcard. Who is that? That's what it's here on the back. Hairstyle, that must be, that's 70s-ish. Can you, just, can you describe it for the listeners? OK, there's a, a very elegantly dressed woman here. and Dark uh, woman, shoulder-length hair. She's wearing a silk gown with uh, some sort of, almost a tra- Organza or something. Somewhat provocatively sure. dressed, I think. Yes, it was, oh, it's a beautiful dress. <laughs> as a whole, I may say, is placed in a particularly provocative position. <laughs> this is right in the midriff, as it were. And it's doing some, she's doing some sort of, uh, maybe a, a Latino dance number. I wondered if I she was about to yawn. Oh, she's yes. oh, do you think so? Because she's, she's wearing her pyjamas, uh, she's, still? She's wearing, they, they're pyjama-esque, nice aren't they? And then there are Greek columns either side. Yeah. Um, a little classical reference for you there. Yeah. Right? Nice. Do you recognise the foliage behind her? It's not olive. Dangled. <laughs> it doesn't look like olive to me. I'm not sure what it is. Ferns. This is a tropical, ferns. tropical Tropical farm. ferns by the pillars. Yes. And um, it's like shiny forehead. Um, yes, a bit of powder would have helped. <laughs> and a very, very satiny... It's a satin... An oyster satiny nightgown right down to the to her toes and then also long sleeves. And she looks as if she's just stretching, having just got out of bed. Yeah, yeah. So I think she looks absolutely. Yeah. She looks and the wind is blowing in this wonderful sort of way yeah. behind her. Well, uh, David's been working away behind the bulletproof glass, and um, I wonder if we could maybe see if he could bring this piece of cardboard it's to life. It's called a hula hoop song. <laughs> Jean, Gina Rayner and the Hunters Band. Wasn't a hula hoop in the picture? No, exactly. How is so to often, know? so often, the image is not connected to the uh, the meaning of the rest of it. Is this something you would play on your show, Gideon? There's only one answer. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's got this, it's got an odd charm about it. I don't, I don't think I would know, but. Uh, and the hula hoop's coming back, I, I read, isn't it? it? It does compare, you know, without wishing to sound like an old duffer, it does compare very favourably to some of the records that come out these days. <laughs> I think, technically, the sound quality is pretty good for a piece of cardboard. <laughs> 
Yep. It is amazing. Oh, the playable postcard. Bring him back. Lovely. I imagine she was sponsored by the Hula Hoop marketing board. It slightly reminds me of that, of that song that the, my daughter as a toddler loved, The Wheels on the Bus Go Round and Round. Yes, yes. The Hula Hoop Goes Round and Round. Exactly. I, I, I wonder... We've signed you up to do this musical postcard. It'll be a nice deal, you know, there'll be a flat fee for it, maybe royalties afterwards. See how it goes. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how the money changed hands on these things. Um, who knows? But, uh, well, as the silk pyjama lady continues to rotate at exactly 45 revolutions per minute, uh, that's it for this time from Podcast from the Past. I'd very much like to thank my first-class guests for sharing the postcards from their pasts, Gideon Coe and Ruth Padell. Thank you both. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank Been a pleasure. And thank you for listening. Bye for now. You can see more postcards with their messages posted every day on Twitter. Do follow me at Past Postcard. And you can buy the book Postcard from the Past by me, Tom Jackson, at Amazon and all good booksellers. And if you're looking for podcast production, check out wardorstudios.co.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.